The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder, the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. All scriptures God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, furnished for every good work. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that uh, we're filled with the spirit, ready to... Uh, study his word and to understand the things that we are going to cover in Daniel chapter 8. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is sovereign over human history, that you have declared the end from the beginning, and that genuine prophecy, future foretelling of human events, in the scriptures, one evidence that it is the infallible word of God, that it is without error, and has a supernatural origin and is not something thought up by mankind. Father, now as we study these things, may we be uh, encouraged by them because prophecy is given for the purpose of comfort during times of chaos and times of uncertainty. And may we be comforted by the things that we study just as the Jews in the ancient times were also comforted by the things that Daniel, that were revealed to Daniel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. I guess it was fortuitous that the last time that I was up here on a Wednesday night, which seems like almost a month ago, that we finished Daniel 7, because that way we're sort of a clean break, but we still need to review a couple of things related to the 7th chapter of Daniel. From Daniel chapter 2, verse 5, through Daniel chapter 7, 28, Daniel writes in Aramaic rather than Hebrew. And the reason he is writing in Aramaic is because the subject matter in Daniel 2 through 7 has to do with the Gentile empires. And so he is writing in a Gentile language, Aramaic, in order to communicate God's plan and purposes for the kingdoms of man, the various stages. And, of course, that began in Daniel chapter 2 where we have... The uh, image, the great image, which we have pictured on this slide, which gave a 
view of the kingdoms as they transitioned from the head of gold, which represented Babylon, down through silver, which represented the Persian Empire, and then bronze, which represented the Greek Empire, iron, which represented the Roman Empire, and then the mixture of iron and potter's clay, which represented the revived Roman Empire, which is yet future. That is the kingdom of the Antichrist that is going to dominate during the tribulation period. Now, we have to understand that in terms of its overview of history. Now, it's interesting that in Daniel 2, we get this overview, and then at the close of this section, dealing with the Gentile uh, nations, we have a repetition. But whether than, rather than repeating the image as, uh, as it's given in Daniel 2, which uses precious metals to communicate the various uh, characteristics of these empires... There's a different uh, image given in Daniel 7, and that is of violent, voracious beasts. The Daniel 2 pictures the kingdom of man as man sees his own uh, exploits and his own achievements, whereas Daniel chapter 7 portrays the kingdoms of man as God sees the kingdom of man. And so Daniel chapter 7 closes out the section dealing with the Gentile nations by giving us a panorama of history viewed from its uh, from a moral or spiritual perspective, and there we saw that Daniel introduced or was or was given various symbols in this dream that came in the first year of Belshazzar. Now that's important because Daniel chapter eight is going to be in the third year of Belshazzar, and both events, the dream of chapter seven and the vision of chapter eight, come. Uh, many years prior to the episode in Daniel 6, which was Daniel in the lion's den. So we were introduced to various symbols. We were introduced to the, uh, the four winds of heaven, which picture angelic forces, spiritual forces that are at work influencing human history. And that's not designed to say that human history is simply the effect of these angelic forces, but to recognize the fact that that human history is not uh, distinct from or is not uh, neutral from the events uh, going on in the angelic conflict. That together, these two events, what happens in the angelic realm and what happens in the physical human realm, work together. It doesn't mean that the human volition is somehow neutralized because there's influence from outside. No matter what the influence might be, it is still up to human volition to decide uh, whether they're going to follow God or not. We see the winds representing uh, the unseen forces of the, of the angels upon mankind, and then the sea, the violent, uh, unrestrained salt sea, which throughout Scripture is a picture of, of evil. And it's a picture of how man in his natural state, in his fallen state, unrestrained by Bible doctrine, is... Uh, the breeding ground for violence, it's the breeding ground for trouble, it's the breeding ground for chaos. And that's one reason the Bible authorizes capital punishment and authorizes a military and authorizes uh, just warfare is because there is a need in human history, within human history, for man to uh, restrain the effects of evil. Uh, only the Bible gives a view of evil whereby evil has an origin and then is ultimately going to be defeated and permanently restricted and restrained in the lake of fire. 
But we are not left, as I pointed out many times as we went through that, we're not left to just try to guess at what these various symbols mean. They are interpreted for us in the text. And the angel comes along in the second half of Daniel 7 and uh, gives us uh, an interpretation for these beasts. And four beasts came out of the sea, and these are the same empires that are represented by, by the great statue. The first is uh, like a lion and had the wings of an eagle, and that's the Babylonian empire. And then the second beast resembled a bear, and it was a lopsided bear, and it had um, three ribs in its mouth, which represented the conquest of that bear, and that bear is the Media-Persian Empire. And then the third beast is the leopard, and that represents the third empire, which was the uh, Greek, the empire of Greece under Alexander the Great. And then the fourth beast is the Roman Empire, both in its historical manifestation and in its yet future manifestation. Now, the point of this is that these two images, the the image in Daniel 2 and the image in Daniel 7, complement each other. They look at the same flow of human history from two different perspectives, one from the perspective of man and how he views himself, one from the perspective of God and how God views man. That lays out the... the, the, um, the overview, the outline of human history. Now what's going to happen when we get into Daniel 8 is Daniel is going to shift the focus to Israel. That's why there's a shift back to Hebrew as the main language in the uh, original text because the focus is now going to be on what God is going to do to preserve Israel in the midst of this, this time of the Gentiles. And uh, Luke chapter uh, 23 mentions the times of the Gentiles. And this is a time when Jerusalem will be trodden underfoot by Gentile powers. And even today, Jerusalem is still under the control of Gentile powers. The Arabs are Gentile powers, and the Arabs still control Jerusalem, and the Jews don't control Jerusalem. And Jerusalem has been under the control of Gentile powers since 70 A.D. When the Roman armies under Titus, completely destroyed and destroyed the temple. So it's during this time, during the time of the Gentiles, starting with the original um, defeat of uh, uh, the Jews and destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., up to the present time, even though Israel was back in the land for a short period of time, historically speaking, from about um, 535 B.C. up to the time uh, up to 70 A.D., they were still there under the auspices of some Gentile power. If some Gentile power had withdrawn their protection, the Jews would have been driven out of the land and it was not a complete renew, uh, return to the land, but only a partial return for the purpose of having the birth uh, of the Messiah. So what we see here is a panorama of history in Daniel 6, and I mean in Daniel 7, and then in Daniel 8, we're going to start focusing on how Israel as a nation is going to survive, how they're going to be protected, and what God's plan for Israel is going to be during this time of, uh, time of the Gentiles. Now, as we can wrap up with Daniel 7, there's two things that we ought to take with us in terms of application. Two things we ought to take with us in application. First of all, this is the flow of human history. And the flow of human history indicates that God is going to, uh, to a large degree, leave the kingdom of man un unrestrained. 
And what we see as a lesson from this in terms of the first application is that the main struggle is not a struggle over moral or ethical issues. It's a struggle over spiritual issues. And there's a vast difference. See, there's a lot of... uh, um, most people don't understand the difference between morality and spirituality. Spirituality is moral because morality, morality fits with the establishment code of the Old Testament. Morality is for unbeliever and believer alike. There's all kinds of religious systems that are moral, but they are not spiritual. They don't know anything about Jesus Christ as the second person of the Trinity, the uh, hypostatic union, God incarnate, who died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, so that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Theirs is simply a system of morality trying to impress God through ritual or through good works. And most of the time, the kingdom of man wants to define the issue in terms of moral morality or ethics. For example, we see this in our own nation, our own national history. And we start go back to the early part of the 19th century, and I always like to interpret American history from a from a Christian viewpoint as opposed to the normal secular garbage you get in school, because your teachers never understood enough doctrine or anything about theology to understand that theology is always the key to history. So when you look at at, at the United States of America to understand how the trends of history have been affected, you have to understand how the church has apostatized at various times. In the early 19th century, there was what everybody calls the Second Great Awakening, and it was not as powerful, and I don't think it was truly a work of the Holy Spirit like the First Great Awakening was. See, revivalism, everybody's heard about revivals, and revivalism is the sort of a theological position that God works through revivals that come periodically through history. But revivalism per se came out of America. It's an invention that came up because something wonderful and great happened in the 1740s that was called the First Great Awakening. And then we tried to reduplicate that. And in the Second Great Awakening, there was a real emphasis on morality as opposed to spirituality. There was a lot of false doctrine. There were a lot of extravagant things that happened. You go down and you read some of the wild stories that happened down in Cane Ridge, Kentucky, and and, uh, the camp meetings and their you know, they would have three or 4,000 people together who probably hadn't seen another human being in months, and they would all get together, and they got into all kinds of emotionalism and ecstatics, and they'd be barking and yelping and running up trees, and they weren't speaking in tongues, but they were getting slain in the Spirit, and they were doing all kinds of crazy things, and so everybody thought this was a great work of God. And in the north and along the Atlantic seaboard, it didn't manifest itself in those bizarre antics, but it did manifest itself in a, um, a religious movement, and I use that in a negative sense, in, a, in an emphasis on, on morality. And what came out of the Second Great Awakening was the idea that we could reform society because the Second Great Awakening picked up a heavy postmodern theology. I mean, not postmodern, but postmillennial theology. And that is the idea that Jesus Christ doesn't return to the earth until the end of the millennium. And so the church is going to have its influence on society and basically perfect society gradually through time until society becomes Christianized. And once society in the world is Christianized, then Jesus Christ returns at the end of the millennium. In other words, it is the church that is going to bring in a perfect or utopic state. 
And so they viewed that as their role. Now, that went hand in glove with their view of man. The view of man that predominated during the Second Great Awakening, not everyone, but this was a dominant influence because of Charles Grandis and Finney, was the idea that man was perfectible. He's not really born a sinner. He's not really imputed with Adam's original sin, like we believe, but that man is born the same neutral, free state Adam was created in, so that he's not influenced by Adam's bad decisions. He's not influenced by Adam's original sin. He simply has this... this totally autonomous free choice and man chooses to sin because of social influences and other influences not because he is constitutionally uh, flawed by Adam's original sin so if man is perfectible society is perfectible and if society is perfectible then who's going to perfect it well the church has to perfect it so what they did was they came in and they said that um, we have to reform society and the big sins in society and an American in our American culture, we're always identifying major social sins that we have to solve, that we have to clean up. And once we clean them up, then society is going to be great. And what that has engendered is a messianic view of government. And this is exactly the kind of thinking that characterizes the kingdom of man, is that government becomes the means of affecting social perfection and therefore individual perfection, so we can do away with social ills because they're legislated, and then we're going to bring in a perfect kingdom. Now, once we've dropped off all of our Christian heritage, which disappeared by, by the early 1960s, most Christian, our church historians would say 1963 was the death knell of, uh, and the last, uh, um, the last year where there was any, any impact from the old Puritan theology. Once we got rid of that, it becomes a secular perfectionism. And that's where we are today. You go back to the 19th century and they outlined the big social ills were, were first of all, slavery. And after, after you get rid of slavery, then, then it was uh, temperance and prohibition. And after you get rid of that, it's child labor. And after you solve that problem, it's, it's women's rights and voting rights. And you just look at the whole history of American politics from the 1820s up to the up to the 1930s, and you just click it off. It's a story about, well, first we did away with slavery, and then it was dealing with labor laws, and you had the rise of the unions, and then after that you deal with, with women's rights and women's voting. And what most people don't understand is the reason that women were not given the right to vote under the Constitution was because the Founding Fathers viewed the, the, the core unit in society not as the individual which is how we look at it today. But the core unit in society was the family. And so the man voted because he was the head of the household, and households were voting, not individuals. But once, you, once our nation got away from, a, from using the old uh, Roman Republican uh, history as, as a model and shifted more by the early 1800s to a Greek model, the emphasis went to the individual as opposed to, to a more Republican concept focusing on, on, uh, on the family. But we're getting way off our subject here. But the point I'm making is that in the kingdom of man, government picks up this messianic role because the government is going to be able to solve the problems and perfect society. And so more and more we, uh, Americans begin to look 
to the government as the ultimate solution to problems and rather than fulfilling their biblical mandate of simply uh, restraining evil both uh, internally through a police force and externally through a standing army. And so they began to look at social reformation as the big issue, and that's the problem that we still deal with today. And, and I'm not saying that these, these social problems aren't problems or that they shouldn't be addressed. It's the framework within which they're addressed and that makes a difference. And if you address them within a framework of social perfection, you're, you're grounding it on human arrogance. And so the ultimate result is always going to be flawed because the target is flawed. The issue really isn't social reformation. The issue is uh, related to the ultimate authority of God. Who's going to solve the problems? Is it going to be man and man's institutions, or is it going to be God? And if you place God at the center of society, then these other social problems are ultimately going to be resolved and everything will fall in line. But if you make that the focus, then you're ultimately going to create problems because now you're operating independently from God and you're no longer in dependence upon the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we believe firmly in the separation of church and state that these are two completely different spheres of authority. The state itself does not give us freedom. We believe that, that the church is completely independent from the authority of the state and that the, the uh, state just recognizes that. And that's the, been the historical doctrine uh, on the separation of church and state ever since it was first clearly articulated by Pope Gelasius in about the 5th century A.D. Now that's the first thing we come away with it, that the issue is not moral, the issue is really spiritual and has to do with the authority of God, and the kingdom of man can never solve man's problems. The kingdom of man is always going to progress and is going to go through these stages until Jesus Christ returns, and it is only then that there is going to be any kind of perfect society set up on the earth. And if we don't operate within that framework, then all of our political decisions and all of our social decisions are going to end up with flawed consequences. The second application is that the leader and ruler of the fifth and final kingdom has already come, and that was in the person of Jesus Christ at the first advent. And only when he returns again will there be a perfect environment with a perfect society and perfect government. So as believers, we should not become distracted by the messianic pretensions of secular government or secular society. As I think it was J. Vernon McGee used to say, we don't need to be polishing brass on a sinking ship. And that's the, exactly what most Christians today are trying to do. Now, we have to remember that as Christians, we are not out to reform society, but our role as Christians is to function within society and as citizens. And so when we go and get involved politically, we're getting involved politically not as Christians, but as, as citizens. And the reason I say that is that, and I'll make that distinction, I want to make it clear, so every now and then you'll run into somebody and they'll say, well, I don't drink or I don't do this or I don't dance or I don't go to movies because I'm a Christian. Now I want you to think about that sentence. What they're saying is that because they're Christian, they're not doing something. Now, as a, as a Christian, you may study the Scriptures and decide that in terms of applying the law of love, you're not going to uh, 
do any number of things that are gray area. But the, you're, you've made that decision not because you're a Christian. It's not related to becoming a Christian. It's not at the core of what it means to be a Christian. It is a, just a decision that you've made related to application of doctrine. And it may be different from some, for somebody else. But as soon as you make a statement like, I don't drink because I'm a Christian, what you're saying then is alcohol is an issue in being a Christian. That's the same problem you run into when you say that, that I'm going to vote a certain way or make certain political decisions because I'm a Christian. See, that doesn't have to do with being a Christian. All of a sudden, you're blurring those distinctions between church and state. But because you are an individual political unit in this country, known as a citizen, and as a citizen, you have certain responsibilities under the Constitution, then when you come to the voting booth and you come to political involvement, you're going to make decisions because they are informed by the doctrine in your soul. But you should never make the mistake of saying, well, I vote a certain way or I make certain decisions because I'm a Christian. It's the application of doctrine as you're in your individual priesthood, but it is not a, quote, Christian position. Well, Daniel 8 is going to advance our concept. We've looked at Daniel 7 in the flow of history, and now we come to Daniel 8, which is going to give us a profile of the kind of leadership that is typical of the kingdom of man, at least in its most extreme form. It's a profile of leadership in the kingdom of, of uh, man, and it's going to zero in on the kind of characteristics that are going to be found in the Antichrist. So as we look at Daniel chapter 8, we're going to get a picture. It's going to present a type of the Antichrist, a historical type that occurred in the ancient world and was manifest in a Syrian king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was one of the most uh, evil rulers in all of the ancient world, but he was well-loved at first. He was a charismatic personality. People thought he was wonderful. He did many great things socially. He had uh, very good justification for many of the decisions he made in the early years. And he's going to give us a, an interesting perspective of what we, what we mean, <clears throat> of what the Antichrist will be like, what his personality will be like, and what his, what his uh, character will be like. Uh, he called himself, he was Antiochus IV, he was a member of the Seleucid dynasty, and the term Epiphanes was a name he attached to himself because it had to do with, with the appearance a brilliant appearance or the appearance of God. We, you know, we talk about the, when the Lord Jesus Christ appeared on the earth and came to uh, talk about that as an epiphany, an, an appearance of God. So uh, there was a pun that was developed on his name by people who weren't really impressed with his character, and they would mutter under their breath, Epimenes. And uh, Epimenes was the, was, was the Greek word for idiot. So they had a little play on words for that. It's kind of like how we talk about, perhaps talk about uh, one of our former presidents, Slick Willie. <laughs> same kind of, uh, same kind of uh, dynamic going on there. So Daniel 8 is a passage of Scripture that uh, is going to talk about an event that took place in the past, but the events that it talks about aren't fully exhausted in the past. It, it represents the Antichrist as a type in the historical figure of Antiochus Epiphanes. And yet Antiochus Epiphanes is a 
type of the future Antichrist. And one thing we might say is he presents a psychological profile of, um, of the future Antichrist. So when we start to look at some of the attributes of Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, you'll discover that uh, the Antichrist is going to be one of the most uh, wonderful, kind, winsome personalities in all of history. Too often we think of the Antichrist, we think he's going to show up on the scene with with uh, Antichrist tattooed across his forehead, and he's going to be dressed in, in all leather and have uh, have his ears pierced and his nose pierced. And, you know, he's going to be the, uh, whatever your uh, image of evil is, that's what he's going to look like. But um, this guy is not going to look like that. He's not even going to appear like some self-righteous terrorist like Osama bin Laden. But he is going to be somebody who is well-dressed, well-groomed. He's going to have a wonderful personality. He's going to be the kind of individual that criticism will not stick to. He will be um, uh, completely, uh, he will be a Teflon antichrist. And um, he's going to attract thousands, or really hundreds of thousands, millions of people to his cause because he is going to demonstrate a pseudo-compassion and a care for people that goes unmatched. And you know the masses always want to vote for people who are going to give them something. They never vote from principle. They never vote from objective doctrine. They always vote for somebody who's going to do something to make their own life a little better. And that's the kind of person Antiochus Epiphanes was. He... um, he was a master politician. He had he was skilled in military leadership, and even though he was faced with a number of political problems because of their situation, he was in Syria, and he was faced with uh, enemies on on his flanks. Um, he solved his economic, social, and political problems on the backs of the Jews. He reigned from 171 B.C. to 164 B.C. And during that time, he, or at least the second half of that time, he led a reign of terror in Israel. At no point in history has anyone been as anti-Semitic and anti-Israel as Antiochus IV was. And yet, in terms of his personality... Uh, you know, I'm told, I've always watched, I took, I took German when I was in college. I never reached the level of, uh, of fluency in it where I could really sit and understand any of, of Hitler's speeches. But those that I have talked to who uh, know German fluently and who listen to his speeches say that there was just a mesmerizing quality about them and that they, they were so uh, charismatic and it just sucked people in and they just thought he was so wonderful. And that's the kind of thing that we're going to see with the Antichrist. And of course, he's going to be Satan and dwelt, so he's going to have all of that uh, going for him as well. And yet, um, he is also the most evil person in all of history. Now, we have to remember that Daniel 8 is part of prophetic literature, and prophetic literature is written in times of extreme suffering in order to give comfort primarily to Israel that the suffering is not going to last forever. That God is saying to them, I'm still in control of history even though you're out of the land. Remember in Daniel 8, they, by the time of Daniel 8, they've been in captivity for about 50 to 60 years. It's about 50, uh, 50, uh, 50 B.C., excuse me, uh, five. 550 B.C., so they have another 11 
are about 13 years to go before they start to go back, to trickle back into the land. And so they are wondering if they're ever going to get back into the land. And so when they see uh, what Daniel reveals here in Daniel 8, it's going to give them hope because it, there's the element in here that Antiochus or this, this goat that is going to be uh, attacking is going to go down through the land. It's going to go through the beautiful land, which is Israel. In other words, they will be back in the land. So it is designed to comfort them and to let them know that God is still in control. And even as chaotic as history might appear at times, God is still in control and history is not, uh, does not operate independently from God. So Daniel 8, like any prophetic vision, uh, has three basic parts. It gives the, the vision in the first 14 verses. And then there's a request for information by Daniel in verses 15 to 16. And then there is the revelation or the interpretation given by the angel Gabriel in verses 17 through 26. And just like I I use the analogy in Daniel chapter 7, that you ought to look at this. when, When Daniel is having a vision or a dream, you ought to think about this almost in the sense that, that the angel has set him down in front of a uh, big screen, high definition television with a uh, VCR or DVD, and he's running this thing. And as Daniel is watching the future, every now and then he says, wait a minute. And so the angel hits the pause button and then explains what it is that Daniel is watching. So Daniel, uh, uh, we're told in verse 8, we're given, I mean, verse 1 of chapter 8, we're given the background to this particular uh, dream. And then by the time we get down to verse uh, 17, the angel is going to start telling him what it means. Verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. So Daniel is going to this time have a vision as opposed to a dream. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 1, it was a dream. A dream is something that came while he was asleep at night, whereas a vision is something that comes during, during the daytime. A vision is something where he would be seeing his surroundings around him in Babylon, and then all of a sudden it was as if somebody inserted a screen in front of his eyes, and rather than seeing what was physically before him, he was seeing off into a distance something that God was uh, revealing to him. The third year of the reign of Belshazzar is 551 B.C. Daniel is almost 70 years of age by this time, and he has been in captivity over 50 years. Uh, the vision of Daniel 8 comes um, uh, two years after the time of the vision in Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. And at this point, the language shifts back to Hebrew, which tells us the focus is going to be more on God's plan for Israel. Daniel sees this vision, and it's an external vision, and he is going to see see the world or see history unfold before his eyes as if he were there. It is subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously, and that is that it comes two years after the first vision. It says in verse 2, And I looked in the vision, 
And it came about while I was looking. And the use of participles here in the Hebrew indicates action. And this is ongoing. While he is looking at the vision, actions taking place before his eyes, he sees himself. He says that I was in the citadel, that is the fortress of Susa. In the Hebrew, it's Shishan. The citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Uli Canal. Now, Daniel is in Babylon when the vision occurred. He is not transported to the Uli Canal. He is still physically in Babylon, but he is seeing himself in Susa. Now, Susa is located about 230 miles east of Babylon. At this time, it is a relatively small city, but it had a history. Previously, it had been the capital of Elam. The Elamites were a Semitic people that had a kingdom that flourished from before the time of Abraham. And it had been a major power block to the east of Babylon. But when Nebuchadnezzar rose, or really when his father Nabopolassar rose, they assimilated, they conquered the Elamites and assimilated them into their kingdom. Assyria had previously conquered them under, and it had been relegated to the position of a minor province under Ashurbanipal. But it was in Susa, in this very town, that, that archaeologists discovered the famous code of Hammurabi. It was also in this city, in, in uh, Susa, that later, when the Persians came in, and under the Persian Empire, that uh, Darius Histaspes would build a fantastic uh, citadel and castle. And that is sort of what, part of what Daniel is seeing here. This would be the palace where Esther would serve as queen. So Susa is going to be the capital and become the capital of the second kingdom, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And so Daniel's vision is taking him into the period of the second kingdom, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Now, this is a city where the Jews are going to face some of the greatest uh, attacks of anti-Semitism in their entire history. It's going to be in Susa that Esther will defend her people. And it will be in Susa where Artaxerxes is going to give Nehemiah the decree to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. But Nehemiah is going to face opposition. It is in Susa that the Jews will have to apply doctrine that they are learning in Daniel 8 that there is a future for the nation. And so part of the reason for this revelation is so that in that future generation, the Jews will know from Daniel 8 that they have a future and there is a future for Jerusalem and a future for the Jews in Israel. The Uli Canal was a canal that was constructed for agricultural purposes between two rivers just outside of, uh, of Susa, the Coaspes River and the Coprates River. It was a canal that was cut through the desert. It was 900 feet wide. And so this was uh, uh, known by the Romans also by the name Uleus. And uh, archaeologists have discovered its existence. So this is grounded clearly in a historical situation. That gives us the background, and then in verse 3, we see the content of the vision. Daniel writes, Then I lifted my gaze and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, 
but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. So it indicates that these horns grow on the on the ram while he is watching. This this ram is standing there. It's already in existence. Now a ram is a male sheep. That's important because the next animal is a goat, and a sheep is less aggressive and less agile than a goat, and that plays into the interpretation of the dream. So the ram is a male sheep, and it's represented as being already on the world scene. So he is taken out of time where he is. He's placed in Susa, which now is a capital, and, he, and he's placed in, right down, plopped down in time in the midst of the second kingdom, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. He is going to, uh, let's go on and read through down to about verse, verse 8 to pick up uh, the context. Um, I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So what we see here is two animals. These are different from the kinds of animals that, that we have in uh, chapter 7. But these two animals are going to represent two of the kingdoms. So whereas in Daniel chapter 7, as in Daniel chapter 2, we have this panorama of human history that starts off with the uh, Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, then the Romans, and then the revived Roman Empire... Here we're going to focus on these two kingdoms. The second kingdom, which was the Media Persian Empire, the third kingdom, the kingdom of the Greeks, and the ram is going to represent the Medo-Persian kingdom, and the he-goat, the male goat, is going to represent the kingdom of Greece. It's going to focus initially on its rise under Alexander, but then it is going to shift the focus to the end time of this period on Antiochus Epiphanes as the, as the fulfillment here. That gives you an overview, so let's see how this is going to uh, develop. He uses two, two images here, that of the ram, that of the ram and that of the male goat. Now Daniel, remember, was brought over as a captive from Jerusalem, and he had to go through all the indoctrination and training from the, uh, from the Babylonians. So he is well-schooled in the Babylonian zodiac. And in astrology, in their astrological symbol, the ram was a sign of Aries, and the goat was associated with the sign of Capricorn. Now, uh, <clears throat> these two animals are used as symbolism in Daniel's vision because in the astrological geography of the time, Persia is associated with Aries and the ram, and the... Uh, Greeks are associated with Capricorn 
and the male goat. So if you were living at that time and you were uh, presented with these symbols of the ram and the male goat, they would, that would make sense just as you, if you talk about the U.S. in terms of an eagle uh, or Britain in terms of a lion, that makes sense because these animals are associated with those uh, nations. Furthermore, it's well known that in the ancient world, the, when the Persians held a military review or when the Persians went into uh, battle, the king would always march before his troops carrying in front of him not a crown but a ram's head. So the symbol of the ram and the goat, which may seem strange to us because we don't normally think of them as aggressive animals like we usually associate with symbols of of nations, uh, never forget. You know, you always pick some kind of aggressive animal for a football, uh, you know, football mascot. There's a town down in Central Texas, which is, I mean, the whole area is well known for deer hunting. But they had this big sign coming into town that, you know, the name of the high school says "Home of the Fighting Deer." <laughs> you know, there's just something there that just doesn't make a. It just, it just doesn't fit. Well, we don't think of rams and, and male goats as being necessarily aggressive animals either, but in the ancient world, uh, those were the symbols associated with these two particular uh, empires. Now, we're told in the, in the text that the, the ram had two horns. Uh, the two horns came up, though, while he's watching. And the two horns are long. One is longer than the other, and the longer one comes up after the first one. So the first horn represents the Median kingdom, and the Medes were a kingdom first, and it was only after that that, that uh, Persia came along. Persia, at the time that the Medes were a kingdom under Cambyses, uh, Persia is a minor, uh, just a minor district, a minor region called Anshan. And when Cyrus came to power, he consolidated power over Anshan, which later became uh, Persia, and he gained control over the Midianites and united the two kingdoms. So that, that's the picture here. The first kingdom that comes up, the first one that comes up is the Medes. The second one is the Persians. And so we're not left to uh, wonder. Remember, the writer of Scripture is going to interpret this for us. We don't just have to uh, guess at what these symbols mean. Uh, when it's interpreted in verse 20, the angel says that the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Now, it's important to understand this because this is prophecy, and at the time that Daniel sees this vision, he is still in Babylon, and there is no Media Persian Empire. It is on its. It is about to happen, but it is not on the scene uh, yet. So verse 20 is true predictive prophecy where the angel specifically identifies what this nation is going to be. And then in verse 4, we see a description of this ram after the longer horn takes over and it becomes a Persian empire. Uh, Daniel says, I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. Now this first phrase, I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, represents the three directions of military attack of Cyrus as he established the Persian Empire. 
when he butted westward, he pushed westward, first of all, his first major line of attack was to the west against the Lydian Empire. We studied that previously. And this was a time when he had the uh, had a major battle against Creasus and the Lydians when under Creasus they lined up their horse cavalry at the uh, front of their troops. And Cyrus got the brilliant idea to, instead of having the horse cavalry and chariots up front, he set camels up there because horses hate camels. And so he... Uh, he attacked the uh, Lydians with the, his camels at the front, and the camels uh, caused the, the horses and the chariots of the Lydians to, uh, to bolt, and they lost control of their horses, and so the Persians were able to defeat them. So they, in 547 B.C., he defeated the uh, Lydian Empire. Then he went north uh, from uh, Persia, and that was against the Medes, and he... Uh, captured the capital of the Medes at Ecbatana in 550 B.C. And then he moved south and conquered the Babylonians in 530, uh, 539 B.C. I want you to notice that all of these events, all of these events took place prior to the vision of Daniel 8. Daniel 8 takes place in 551 B.C. And it's the, the first of these. It's not given in orders. Westward was 547, but that was the second attack. The northward was the first attack, in case you thought I was out of order. The scripture lists them, does not list them in chronological order. But the first attack chronological was when he went north and captured the Median capital at Ecbatana, and that occurs in 550. So this is 551 B.C. that Daniel sees the vision. So he it's, it's true predicted prophecy. It's a year off, and the Media Persian Empire is not yet a historical reality. And then we're told that after he conquers in these three directions, no other beast could stand before him. So apparently Daniel saw other beasts. He doesn't mention them. He doesn't identify them. But apparently there are other unnamed, unmentioned beasts that he sees, other nations that are defeated by Cyrus. And this is true as the Persian Empire grew to take over uh, most of the what we call the Middle East today, Iran, Iraq, down into Arabia, over to Egypt, uh, and as far uh, west almost as the Indus River into Afghanistan and into Central Asia. Then Daniel says, Nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased, and he magnified himself. So this is a picture of the kings of Persia who are magnifying themselves and asserting their own authority independent from God. Now, while this is happening, we recognize that this is the second manifestation of the kingdom of man in history, and that God gives the kingdom of man power, power to do as he pleases. But there will always come a time of collapse as the history marches forward. And in verse 5, we see the destruction of this second kingdom. While I was observing, behold, a male goat or a he-goat, literally in the Hebrew it says a buck of the goats, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth. And the term whole earth indicates the expanse of this this kingdom. He comes over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat, the male goat, had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And the fact that he's coming over the surface of the earth without touching the ground indicates his speed. And so this is going to be a reference to the rise of the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great 
and is a picture of the rapidity of his conquest. It's the same thing as portrayed by the leopard back in chapter 7. A leopard is a uh, fast animal, speedy animal, and that represents the speed of Alexander's conquest. Alexander was the son of Philip II of Macedon, who had conquered Greece and was unifying Greece and was prepared to go after the Persians. Now, the Greeks and the Persians had a long-standing rivalry, and that's important for understanding what is said in verses 6 and 7. They hated each other ever since the Persians had come across under Xerxes, or and even earlier, and conquered the kingdoms in Asia Minor. See, the Greeks have always had their eye across to across the, the Aegean to Turkey. And even today, there's, there's continuous tension between the Greeks hate the Turks and the Turks hate the Greeks, and you have all kinds of uh, problems, historical problems on the island of Cyprus. And this has its roots all the way back in ancient history. The Greeks have always had their eyes on the... Uh, uh, peninsula of Asia Minor, which today we call Turkey. So Alexander, after uh, at this time, because this is after the Persian attempts to conquer Greece, is out for revenge. And after Philip II, his father is assassinated in 336 B.C., Alexander takes over, and in 334 he attacks the Persians and with a rapidity that is unparalleled in human history. Alexander, who was a young man in his uh, mid-twenties, uh, conquered the world in under five years. And that's what it means without touching the ground. He advanced because of his uh, military genius, and he developed the, uh, and developed the Greek phalanx and gave them 25-foot spears. And so the, the uh, charging or advancing forces and chariots would be impaled upon these long spears, and then that would allow the uh, phalanxes in reserve to come up and... Uh, defeat the uh, enemy. So they came across and uh, came across the Bosphorus in 334 and began to take on the take on the uh, Persians. Now we're told that this this uh, goat has a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Now we have to watch this goat because he's animated. He starts off with this large, conspicuous horn. It's single. Now, that's not normal. A goat, like a sheep, normally has two horns. But here he's like a unicorn. He has one major horn between his eyes. And then, in, um, and this is the first king, as described in verse 21. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. Now, normal, Greece is not on, even on the historical horizon much at this point, other than... Uh, and uh, we're talking about the 6th century B.C. We haven't even come to the golden age of Athens yet when Daniel is looking at this. And when Dan- Daniel is being told that, that in the future the kingdom of Greece is going to be more powerful than that of the Medes and the Persians. So that is tr- a true revelation. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. So that's Alexander. Now in verse 6 we read, And he came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. He is angry. There there is this this anger, this hatred, this vindictiveness that the Greeks had to the Persians because of the way the Persians had invaded Greece and raped and pillaged their way down through uh, Achaia. So this is a picture here. They come across, they cross the Dardanelles, and, and uh, 
Uh, if you remember, we, I taught that Alexander had an army of about 35,000, and he was met with an army of, of, uh, of uh, several hundred thousand by, the, by Xerxes. And yet, at, um, in this first encounter at the Granicus River, the Greeks defeated the uh, Persians. And then again, they're defeated at Isis. He defeats Darius III at Isis. And then the third great defeat was down at Arbella in Persia near the site of Nineveh. And Alexander went on to sack Persepolis, Susa, and Ecbatana, all the major cities in Persia. And the Greeks in five years take control and expand their empire all the way to the Indus River. And verse 8, Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, notice he doesn't last long, as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So notice the animation here. You have this large horn that's broken off, and then in its place out comes four horns. Now that's certainly something that doesn't happen in nature. The breaking of the large horn relates to Alexander's death in 323 B.C. He was uh, drunk and went to a party and uh, died in an alcoholic stupor that night. And uh, he did not know how to handle his, his prosperity. And so his kingdom was then divided up among four of his generals. So in its place, four conspicuous horns uh, come up, and these represent... Uh, these, these represent his, his four generals. The first was Ptolemy, who assumed control of the Egyptian sector of Alexander's empire. And the, uh, he began a new line of Egyptian rulers, the Ptolemies, and the last of which was Cleopatra. Cleopatra was a Greek. She was not an Egyptian. She was a Greek. The second general was Seleucus, who assumed control of the Syrian and the Babylonian section of Alexander's empire and began a hereditary line of rulers, and that is going to be the line from which Antiochus Epiphanes comes. The third general was Cassander, and he took control of Macedonia and the Greek section of Alexander's empire, and then Lysimachus took control over Thrace, and Asia Minor, or Turkey, as we call it today. Now, here's the image. You have a great horn. It's broken. It's replaced by these four conspicuous horns. And then in verse 9, out of one of them came forth a rather small horn. It's insignificant compared to these others, or at least its beginning is. It's a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great. So it has inauspicious beginnings, but it gains in power. But the power is directed geographically. It, it grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. And the beautiful land is a term, a term for Israel. And it is a, the beautiful land is a term for Israel. And actually the word means a land that is to be desired. And it is the land that is to be desired from Israel. And this little horn is Antiochus the fourth. Epiphanes, who is going to rise to power after the murder of his brother Seleucus Philopator, and he is going to use bribery and flattery in order to gain the, the throne and seize it from the rightful heir, who is Demetrius, the son of Seleucus. But Demetrius is being held in a host, as a hostage in Rome, and so uh, 
Antiochus is going to uh, weasel his way to the throne and then he is going to uh, keep it from Demetrius and he is going to become one of the most evil rulers in all of history. We'll come back next time and look at the career of Antiochus as a type of the Antichrist. Now this is important because what we're going to see as we go through Daniel is Daniel 7 gave us the panorama. Daniel 8 comes in and starts focusing on two kingdoms and how Israel is and the role of Israel in those kingdoms. And then as we go through Daniel 9 and we go into Daniel 10 and Daniel 11, it's going to narrow its focus even more and more as to what takes place in the inter-advent period and then in the future. So, so it's going to become more and more detailed in terms of the prophecy that is given with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time that we have. Uh, to study your word, we thank you for you are a God who controls history. And therefore, when we see the chaotic events around us and uncertainty, we know we can relax because we have confidence in a God who controls history. Father, we thank you for your grace in our lives and for your word, which gives us comfort in times of difficulty. We pray that uh, the Holy Spirit would make these things uh, real to us and help us to understand them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.